0: Welcome to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is Brooke Williams, author most recently of Open Midnight, where ancestors and wilderness meet. Open Midnight weaves two parallel stories about the great wilderness. Brooke Williams, year alone with his dog, ground-truthing back maps of southern Utah, and that of his great-great-great-grandfather, William Williams, who in 1863 made his way with a group of Mormons from England, across the ocean, and the American wild, almost to Utah, dying a week short. The story follows two levels of history, personal, as represented by his forebear, and collective, as represented by Charles Darwin, who lived in Shrewsbury, England, about about the same time as William Williams. Brooke Williams has spent the last 30 years advocating for a wilderness. He's author of four books, including Half-Lives, Reconciling Work and Wildness, and The Story of My Heart by Richard Jeffries, as rediscovered by Brooke Williams and Terry Tempest Williams. And, of course, Open Midnight, the new book. His journalistic pieces have appeared in Outside, Huffington Post, Orion, and Salt Front. He and his wife, Terry Tempest Williams, divide their time between Utah and Wyoming. Brooke Williams will be at the King's English Bookshop tonight, 7 o'clock, for a book signing. And he joins us for the hour now. Brooke Williams, welcome back to the program.
1: Thank you, Tom. I'm happy to be here.
0: Uh, we're, uh, we're happy to have you uh, with us. A uh, very interesting uh, book. Enjoyed the, the read. I recommend it to, uh, to listeners. Um, I wonder uh, if you've got the book with you, if you could read the, uh, the, the opening quotation by uh, Clarissa Pinkola Estes uh, which I think gets us into many of the themes of the book
1: I'd love to The doors to this world of the wild self are few but precious If you have a deep scar, that is a door If you have an old, old story that is a door If you love the sky and water so much you almost cannot bear it, that is a door If you yearn for a deeper life a full life, a sane life that is a door yeah, that's Clarissa Pinkola essays.
0: So, door to the world of the wild self. And you've, you've been concerned about this for, for a long time, I believe, searching for this, at least for yourself.
1: I have. I, I think about William Kittredge, that great Montana writer who also taught for many, many years. I took a bunch of courses from him. I, I consider him a mentor. And he once told me, he said, the one thing I try to do is get my students to find and tell the one story, find the one story they'll tell over and over again the rest of their lives. And I guess that's kind of what I've I've done, this wild self, um, this idea that we're living in these age-old bodies, 100,000-year-old bodies, and one of our problems might be the fact that we've got a world now that is vastly different than the one we were designed for. mm
0: mm-hmm. You uh a lot of time in this book, and, you, of course, you spend a lot of time out there ground-truthing. What What is ground-truthing?
1: Ground-truthing is sort of a general term for looking at what's on a map and then going out and checking the ground to make sure that the map is as accurate as it can be. Most maps are made from aerial photographs, and it's important to know what's really on the ground before publishing them and when i was working for the southern utah wilderness alliance my specific job was to take these maps most of which were uh... route route maps travel plan maps and to make sure that the roads that were on the maps were actually roads on the ground because as you know one of the big issues around wilderness is roads if there are roads inside a big piece of property a big parcel of land then it can't be designated as wilderness so there are many 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 roads out there that have been mapped but once you get on the ground and start trying to find them they've disappeared over time through not unuse and the fact that nobody's maintained them
0: mm. and you spent a lot of time out there with your dog rio
1: i did Rio was my right hand man for fourteen years.
0: Ah, yeah, yeah. Uh, now, now passed on.
1: Yeah, he died in twenty fifteen.
0: Mm. And R- R- Rio is—he's a real character in the book. He'd, you come to come to love him as you write about him. Um, and you dedicate the book to your wife, Terry Tempest Williams, and to Rio.
1: Yes, they were both—they were both huge parts of this book and my life for the all the years that I've been thinking about this.
0: Mm. Wonder that your first chapter uh, takes us on an interesting journey. Of course, you know a lot of us know that uh, that you and Terry Tempest Williams split your time between Castle Valley near Moab and uh, I think it's the Jackson Hole area in Wyoming. Correct. Correct. Um, so Castle Valley, and, and you write about about you and you and Terry Tempest Williams coming to Castle Valley. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. You'd, you'd been out there, you knew the country, and then at a certain point, you decided, well, we're going to move out there.
1: Yes, um, it was in 1998. We were in Moab to meet some friends who had just come off a river trip. And we'd had dinner and we camped out. And they all got in their plane and flew back, to, back east where they were from. And we had the whole day to just wander around. And we decided to drive out to Castle Valley. A good friend of mine had just purchased a lot out there. And I had never really been there. I had seen it from Porcupine Rim, and I'd heard stories about it. But we just decided to go out there and see if we could find my friend Chris's lot. So we started driving around and realized that there was, you know, too many possibilities. So we gave up on the idea of finding his lot. But we saw a little house that had a for sale sign on it, and it looked like something that if we scraped enough money together we might be able to afford to have a second home and actually live there. So we called the realtor and she said, oh, I'm sorry, that house just sold, but I have a number of other ones I'd like to show you. So if you want to meet me the the next day, tomorrow, I will uh, take you on a little tour. So she did. We met her. She showed us this one house. And once we went inside, we just fell in love with it, with the, the big views and the place where it was surrounded by pretty much wild desert and the nearest neighbor a quarter mile away. And we said, wow, this is an amazing house, but it was much more money than we could afford for a second home. So we, we told her we'd get back to her. We drove home back to Salt Lake, and the whole way home, we thought of all the reasons that we couldn't just pack up our life and move to Castle Valley, and there weren't that many. Uh, No one in my family had really uprooted themselves from Utah, um, except for temporary um, going away to school or something like that or on a mission. So we got back home and decided, well, let's just do it. We, we We put our house up for sale. We made an offer. And it all happened within two months, miraculously. And by the end of the year, we were pretty much moved in.
0: And they're in they're in Castle Valley, as you describe it, uh, at least in your house. Um, you know, you you have snakes and spiders in the house. Uh, fine red dust blows through and becomes part of everything. Uh, you also say that uh, we discovered the word red. We now know that, like DNA, the letters R E D are code for the universe of possibility. Um, it's it, it's a very interesting place. Be, I guess become part of you.
1: It has. It's interesting you, you talk about that, the color red. And, um, people are always criticizing me in a you know, tongue-in-cheek sort of way because of all the pictures I post on the Internet of the same exact view, which is right off our porch. And I, I, I just can't tell you how many shades of red that those cliffs turn, depending on the weather, depending on the time of year, depending on – You name it, the moisture in the air, even. And uh, I don't know if you remember that movie Smoke. I think it's Harvey Keitel movie where he had a little smoke shop. And every day he went out and took a picture of the front of his smoke shop and put them all on an album. And somebody um, the other day said, Yeah, Brooke, you remind me of Harvey Keitel in that (laughs) movie Smoke. Because every day you put pretty much the same picture up (laughs) on the Internet.
0: (laughs) And that speaks to I, I get an urge to, to put down roots, right? To be in one place, hopefully a beautiful place. Uh, on the other hand, uh, a big part of the book is you and Rio out, out there, right? In a... yeah, with yeah,
1: we would take mainly day trips, but um, often we'd camp out. We always had the option of camping out if we if necessary. But yeah, there were. My job was to look at the book cliffs look at the San Rafael Desert, look at a lot of the area around Canyonlands, and just, you know, check it for routes and, and to see which, which places were still um, capable of being designated wilderness, still had those qualities.
0: Hmm. Uh, so this idea of—and uh, you talk about um, civilization being a thin veneer, a book that's influential on you, that the author used that phrase— Um, So civilization versus wildness, or or do the two coexist?
1: Well, you know, they definitely coexist, but not at the same time in the same place. The author you're referring to is Paul Shepard, and he wrote that um, phrase that civilization is a veneer, and beneath that veneer is this core. And it's... The whole, you know, the whole area was at one time wild, and it's just been gradually covered by, you know, homes and pavement and ranches. But there's still many, many thousands of acres, millions of acres, even that have not been, and those are the ones we're interested in. And I feel so fortunate that I can live in a place where, within a few minute walk, I can be in a wild place, yeah. and I try to do that every day
0: you 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 write that uh, they're in Casa Valley and um, you don't have uh, television, I guess unless you get uh, you know satellite. So you found a new capacity for paying attention, you said.
1: I think so. Uh, I just feel, feel like the the surrounding landscape and the light and the cliffs and everything are just so spectacular that. That's that can take up a lot of our evenings is just sitting there and watching it, especially in the in the spring and the fall, and and still pretty hot in the summer. But um, no, it's uh, it's a real gift. The winter nights are really long when Mm -hmm. when it gets dark so early.
0: And you uh, you say you go to bed earlier (laughs) because (laughs) television. You read more. You go to bed earlier. Uh, follow the natural rhythms, I guess. You write for, interestingly, about community. Uh, let me quote here from page uh, 21. Community, we've learned, is not a group of hand-picked people living spread out across a big city who talk the same, read the same books, go to the same movies. Community is geographic. How so?
1: Well, in the sense that we live in this valley altogether, and it's a real broad spectrum of personalities and beliefs and Uh, Philosophies. There's a good little Mormon community there. There are a lot of sort of off the grid aging hippies uh, that are so tied to the land and really never leave much. And then there's a bunch of people like us that, you know, are trying to make a living, moving around a lot, um, trying to, you know, make our difference in the world. So it's a a broad spectrum of people, and we don't get along on everything. I'll never forget that when we first moved there, um, we we went to a few meetings, and I have never been in such explosive public meetings before. The people were so uh, adamant about their positions. And then there was one thing that everybody seemed to agree on, and that was the dark night skies. And I can't tell you the number of discussions we had about how to keep the sky Dark at night. In terms of what kind of lights we could use, you know, we d- we had a um, elect- electrical supplier talk to us about how there are lights possible that kind of send the beam down instead of out. Um, I'll never forget uh, the people that built our house that we bought it from had for some reason put uh, a light that lit up the roof, so you can't really see it from inside, and. Uh, We never used it, but one day our niece was there visiting, and I guess she flipped on the switch of that light. And the next morning when we all left town, we didn't notice it because it was daylight. And I can't tell you the number of calls we got from around the valley, people saying, can you please turn off that light? It's like a spaceship landed out there. So that was one thing we all agreed on. Everything else we really don't. There are issues around water. There are issues around... um, the uh, Utah open lands, which now which has has helped us put a lot of uh, land into conservation easement around the place, there's a lot of um, discussion about uh, roads and which ones should be closed to vehicles and which ones shouldn't. but what's the great thing about living in a community where it's geographic is you realize if there's one issue that you may disagree on, with someone, there may be another issue that you agree on, and you still have to run into each other at the post office boxes, and so you have to get along. You can't just let one issue divide you make you know make the relationship impossible because you got to get along, and that's that's been the real value for me.
0: Hmm. I wonder. I'd, I'd like to skip ahead uh, and uh, follow up on what you were just saying, then then uh, double back. Um, so your, your uh, chapter on Recapture Creek, I think, encapsulates the, the growing polarization in, you know, in the entire political debate, and specifically around this idea of wilderness and, and public lands. Uh, you talk about someone you call the general.
1: I know, the general. What a, uh, what a character he is, an intimidating character, and I think he really is a general, or was. Uh, County Commissioner Lynn Stevens from San Juan County uh, was, he's now no longer a county commissioner, but he was um, for a long time that I was working down there. Um, Yeah, real character, rural, very strong-minded, but also very, very intelligent. And in a way that you kind of felt like you were always being a little bit manipulated by him that he was so smart. And always in a position of being kind of pushed off guard a little bit. So that, that chapter that you mentioned, Recapture Creek, it was all about uh, the, this illegal road that had been built, and you know Lynn Stevens and the other county and other county commissioners, as well as many members of the county, uh, wanted that road in there. And the fact that this canyon is so archaeologically rich that there was out of there, so we were on a field trip, and you make a really good point, really a reading of that chapter. Everyone that, was, that liked the road was, were, was on horses. The rest of us were walking, and there were just, just some interactions that really kind of made me feel, not that I was right and they were wrong, but that we were never really going to be able to come to any sort of compromise on some of these issues. Because we are so far apart, it's like we are living in two different worlds, actually. but I have a lot of respect for mm-hmm. these people, and I hope that comes through in the book mm-hmm. that um i didn't didn't mean in any way to disparage them but just to create a a picture of what we're up against.
0: there's a there's a colorful st- story. Um, there's a public meeting, I guess, before you're going to go out half on horseback, half on foot. Yeah. Um, and uh, someone says, "Will somebody give a prayer?" And
1: yeah, I guess years ago. Oh, is, is that a di- um, that's a
0: different time? Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, years ago, I don't know when it was, but I guess they always gave a prayer, and it was always a typical Mormon prayer. And I guess somebody complained that you know we have a separation of church and state, so you can't just give a Mormon prayer in. in in the beginning of every public meeting. So I guess they asked a lot of lawyers, and they came up with the idea that they would say, we will, We always ask somebody to offer an opening prayer, or a moment of silence, or... There, there was a very specific language that they used every meeting, but usually it was, you know, a, a, a typical Mormon prayer, if somebody would stand up and say a a typical Mormon prayer. Once I heard one of the county commissioners, a Navajo man, give a a Navajo prayer in Navajo, which was beautiful. And so I don't know what came over me, but they said, now is the time for a, a prayer or a moment of silence. And I just raised my hand and I said, I'll pray. And that's when the general turned to me and said, in kind of a snicker way, well, Brooke, which God are you going to be praying to?
0: <laughs> and you said you 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 channeled uh, one of your great great grandfathers, which is Brigham Young.
1: Yeah, I, I channeled Brigham Young.
0: Yeah. <laughs> also, you I think uh, James Talmadge is one of your ancestors. Yeah,
1: good memory. Yeah, he's yeah. he's my great grandfather on my other side. Yeah, so my you, mom's side.
0: You got some definite uh, um, Mormon heritage. And, but you're kind of, you know, living between the two worlds there in, uh, you know, in, in, in that rural area. Um, let me read just a, a bit of here. This page 156. You say, part of getting older is becoming comfortable with knowing that arguments aren't worth having, unless they might move those arguing closer together rather than further apart. And then uh, skipping a little bit. On good days, I think we're making progress on the wilderness issue in San Juan County, that a reasonable compromise might be possible. On bad days, I don't. The bad na- days outnumber the good.
1: Yes, and I think since that was written, that's even more the case. I think somewhere in the book later, maybe, I really come to the conclusion that I can't see any sort of compromise, because you always get a sense that compromise is when two opposing views come together, and they say, all right, I'm willing to give up something if you're willing to give up something. And in the case now, it's as if you meet, try to meet somewhere in the middle it's so, we're so far apart that even something in the middle is really has really become unacceptable. So I don't know. I don't know. I I, I would like to think that rather than being on uh, a a line with uh, rural people, rural rural populate, um, politicians on one end and environmentalists on the other end, and that somewhere along that line we come up with a solution. I would rather see that there's a way forward. It's uh, it's, a more, it's an, adds another dimension to this story, rather than looking at the way we have for the last 25 or 30 years.
0: You talk. You go on to talk about wholeness and consciousness, and you you relate this back to um, the 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 looting arrests that happened and made the news, of course, and and the suicide of uh, Doctor Red there, which was which was huge news. Um. And I wonder if you could t- tell me about uh, all this was going on. You had a definite point of view on it, but weren't weren't airing it? I guess that would be, I don't know, pretty toxic to have a discussion at, at least at that time. But mm-hmm. you heard you heard something. Uh, let's see, Forrest Kutch, I think it was right. Yeah, uh, ma- made a comment about that.
1: this. I was um, actually driving to San Juan County when the news of that raid came on the radio, and Forrest Kutch was um, interviewed as being, you know, the head of Utah Indian Affairs at the time, and he basically said, someone who would desecrate the graves of another people lack consciousness. And I started to think about what that really meant, and so it took me on sort of a long involved um, search for what what people actually thought of as when they heard the word consciousness and I you know I sent uh, some emails to some different people that would have uh, an opinion about that and it was it was really helpful it was helpful
0: mm-hmm. what's what's the atmosphere do you think now this has been several years since that all happened you know the, the federal government cracked down on pot hunting um, has that culture changed? Do you think what's what's the feeling of, of the locals?
1: It's hard to say. I I know that um, it's pretty it's pretty well known fact that in in canyons where there are roads that have motorized access, to pot hunting levels of pot hunting are higher. Whether that decreased a little bit since this happened, I'm not sure because you know a lot of people got into a lot of trouble because of it, and what I learned was and I think everyone else did too who followed it at all, is that it was part of the culture, that people would go out on Sunday afternoons into places that they knew these artifacts existed, and they would, you know, dig around and find them. And the problem with it, well, it's always been a problem, but as more and more, and more of this happened, there was less and less in the way of artifacts to go find, and the main artifacts to find were with burials. And that's when they started digging up burials because of the artifacts that would be left with the dead. The culture believes that, you know, the dead go on and they need things and they need to be buried with some of their possessions. Hmm. So that that became a huge problem. Um, Has it lessened? I don't know. I think it would be so hard to completely patrol it. And I think one of the reasons that we now want to see National Monument Protection is with that comes, ideally, uh, budgets to have more enforcement so we can pay more attention to this. Uh,
0: Before we go to break, I want to take a break, and when we come back, I want to uh, treat this interesting question you write in the book. Is it possible to become native to a new place? You and uh, Terry Tempest williams moved out there to Castle Valley, and uh, this question occurred to you, is it possible to become native to a new place? And then... That led you to a uh, search for uh, an ancestor, and you chose William Williams. And then you've uh, connected him in the book up with uh, Charles Darwin, who lived uh, in, you know, five miles, I think, away from, from where William Williams uh, lived in England. Um, we'll talk about all of that. Uh, before we go to break, we have uh, this question from Steve. Steve says James Talmage is a reference. Your non-Mormon listeners, or at least this non-Mormon listener, may not understand who was he. I'm, and I apologize, Steve. We, we got two insider Mormon there. Um, so James Talmage, Mormon apostle, right, and and scientist.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you know, he was the one that um, wrote Jesus the Christ, but he was a scientist also. And there are there's a math building named after him at the University of Utah. He was the, And he was also a geologist. He, uh, for climbers out there in Little Cottonwood Canyon, there are these, I think they call them bugs, or I can't remember the exact name, but there are these black um, pieces of rock that are much harder than the surrounding area, so they stick out. And he was the scientist that first described those, the geologist that first described what those were and how they were formed, in fact, his gravestone in the Salt Lake cemetery is a big piece of granite with one of those in the center of it. Mm. So he was both a scientist and a a very effective apostle in the Mormon Church.
0: Uh, So let's take a break. More with Brooke Williams. He's author most recently of Open Midnight, Where Ancestors and Wilderness Meet, and he is uh, going to be at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City tonight, seven o'clock, for a book signing, Um, and we'll have more following this break. This
1: is Management Minute by Professor Scott Hammond. Westfield, Massachusetts is known as Whip City because 120 years ago, 40 companies made buggy whips, tools, and carriage parts. Today, only Westfield whip manufacturing remains. Harvard Business School professor Theodore Levitt gave sound advice to businesses facing change. Back in 1960, he said businesses should concentrate on their customers' needs not on specific products. If buggy whip makers had thought of their businesses as transportation accessories, they might have survived into the automobile era. There were 13,000 businesses in wagon and carriage parts in 1890. Today, less than 1% of those businesses still exist. But that 1% exists because they listen to their customers.
0: The Management Minute is brought to you by our members and the USU Shingo MBA program at the John M. Huntsman School of
1: Business, a 15-month graduate degree for executives giving knowledge and skills to leverage the principles and tools of lean continuous improvement. Huntsman.usu.edu.
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is uh, Brooke Williams. He's author most recently of Open Midnight, Where Ancestors and Wilderness Meet. And Open Midnight weaves two parallel stories about the great wilderness, Brooke Williams' year alone with his dog, ground-truthing backcountry maps of southern Utah, and that of his great, great, great grandfather, William Williams, who in 1863 made his way with a group of Mormons from England across the ocean, and the American wild, almost to Utah, dying a week short. The story follows two levels of history personal, as represented by his forebearer, and collective, as represented by Charles Darwin, who lived in Shrewsbury, England, at about the same time as William Williams. And Brooke Williams is giving um, a book signing and reading tonight at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. That's at 7 o'clock. You're welcome to join this conversation. Hope that you will with your question or comment. Two ways to do that. First, by email, upraccess@gmail.com, at gmail.com, UPRAccess at gmail.com. And uh, you can also reach us at 800-826-1495, 826 uh, 1495 The places to reach us here, uh, we have another half-hour conversation. Brooke uh, Williams, I wonder, before we uh, dive into some history here, uh, keeping things on the current um you and your wife were active in uh, buying up uh, parcels of at least buying leases right to prevent the drilling and such uh, active resistance um what are you suggesting or what are you doing or what are you contemplating uh in an environment that uh, political environment that seems to be moving further and further away from uh, I assume where where you'd like it to be
1: yeah that's a that's uh an issue we're really thinking hard about right now. Um, A year ago, almost exactly a year ago, we bought about 1,200 acres at an oil and gas lease that the BLM held, uh, lease sale that the BLM held in Salt Lake. And it took them forever, but they finally denied them to us. Uh, Most of the people there that day who purchased leases got them within a month, and it took six months for them to finally decide not to give them to us because our intent was not to drill. And we've filed an appeal. We have an organization of lawyers in Denver that think this is a really interesting case because um, there's, a whole, there's a whole movement uh, called Keep It in the Ground, and there's actually a, a bill in Congress that isn't really going anywhere right now um, from Senators Sanders and Merkley to stop, pulling fossil fuels out of public lands. So what we did was right from the start, we just said, our our point is to keep these in the ground until they become uh, more valuable out of the ground. And what that means is that we need to start considering the social costs of burning a barrel of oil. So that was our intent. The lawyers really think that the way they denied the leases to us was very important because... It wasn't on a technicality, or that we did anything against the law. It's just around proving that the law says you must have the intent to drill for for carbon on the if you own one of these leases. So there's a lot of questions out there, and I think this case, um, if it continues on, they're doing a lot of research right now, and they'll make a decision. The lawyers whether this is a, a, a they they can. Ex- Extract enough valuable information from this case to make it worthwhile. So that's the status of it right now.
0: Hmm. What do you? What? What are your thoughts? Um, there's, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, hand wringing, and also a lot of energy and uh, thought about how to harness that energy on the left these days. You know, progressives, uh, liberals, specifically with the environmental movement. How, how would you suggest uh, people getting to harness politically, that, to harness you, that you energy? The, yeah. And,
1: uh, you mean the energy that's the, the carbon that's in the ground? Uh, no, no, the the,
0: the 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 emotional energy, the you know the.
1: Oh, I see. I see yeah. what you're saying. Yeah, it's more important right now than ever, especially since the election, because everything seems to be going in the opposite direction. And I, I feel like, I don't know how you feel, but ever since uh, the election, I've felt like. Sort of a fluttering. I feel like my feet aren't firmly on the ground. Um, i I feel a nervousness that I haven't ever felt before. And I feel like just an there's an active energy. And on one hand, it, it's a negative feeling but then when I really think about it, I think it's a positive feeling because so many people now are lit up is a term I heard used recently that weren't before. I mean, I think a lot of us were getting kind of, um, sedate or we felt like things were going pretty well and we all felt like the election was going to turn out differently and now that I look back on it, I'm a real optimist and I try to be positive I look back on it and I think, you, you know, had Hillary Clinton been elected it's, chances are we would have sort of slipped deeper into this sedation And um, but, but now seeing what has been bubbling, steaming beneath the surface I feel like now is as good a time as any for it to come up and we have to deal with it. And I don't know what the results are going to be, but I feel like um, one of the, one of the results of this book or not results, but the extensions of it is that I really have come to believe that deep inside of each of us, we have this biological desire to pass life onto the future. And that, now means a number of different things it means you know have your own children but it also means really work hard toward creating a future where the next generations can thrive and i feel like that's my job is to help people see that place to help them find it and go out and do something that really makes a difference and what they're going to find is not only will they make a difference but it's probably the most meaningful thing they could ever
0: do so you've talked just there about the past uh, or the future, rather. Uh, you connect it up in the book with the past, however. You, you talk about uh, you're out at Dead Horse uh, State Park, Dead Horse Point, and there's a, a woman who says yeah. she says, "I can see it. I can finally see forever." Emphasis on forever.
1: Yeah, that was really uh, that was really an interesting moment for me because as I write, I felt like she when I first next to her I felt like she was in some kind of a trance and we were standing there where there's the chart which shows all the geological layers and what they're named and their age so there's that but then you just move your head five degrees and you're looking at it this view which goes on I mean to the end of the earth and when she said I can finally see forever all of a sudden I started thinking about forever is the whole spectrum of time, right here in front of us, right now, and that is all the way back to the past 300 million years, according to that chart. But all, all the way as far as you can see into the future, and I, I just des- decided that being able to see a great distance in the past is really um, the key to seeing a great distance in the future. So it's all there, right? Right? It's all here, right now. Mm-hmm but how do we see it and how do we think about it in those terms that's that's where i think we're missing right now
0: so i'd like to have you uh, talk about your search for uh, an ancestor at first it wasn't william williams right you were you were searching for an ancestor uh, tell me about how how that began
1: i had this idea for a new book and a friend of mine in moab had told me that he went back to England where his family was from, and he said he felt such a connection to the landscape and to the people. He said they looked like him. It was a small village somewhere in England. And it started me thinking, and I'd fallen in love with Castle Valley, and I just loved everything about it. I loved the landscape. I loved the geology. I loved the way the light hit the cliffs. I loved how easy it was to wander around. And I thought, I have no genetic connection to this place. What if I went to a place where my family actually came from, in Europe, and spent some time there and and wrote a book comparing how I felt in two different landscapes, one that I had just fallen in love with and the other where my family actually came from. So the first step is I had to find out where I came from. So I had my father send me my complete genealogical record, which he had 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 done. I think I had to work on it when I was a kid a little bit, too. And the first thing I pulled out was my pedigree chart, the one where, you know, I'm on the left side, and then my parents, and then the grandparents, all the way over to the right side, where there's a long row of, a long column of my great-great-great-grandparents. And then all these people in between. And I realized that I came from many, many different places, that I had genetic material from many, many different people. And so I had to narrow it down, and I created a set of criteria, three criteria. They were that I wanted to find somebody whose last name was Williams, who made the decision to leave Europe and come to America, and who I had never heard of before. Because you mentioned James D. E. Talmage and Brigham Young, I have, you know, on that pedigree chart, four or five, six people whose stories are really well known and who we had to learn as kids. When it was great, I, I come from a great heritage, but there were many, many more people on there who I had never heard of. So, the first person who met that, those three criteria, was in the upper right-hand corner of the pedigree chart. His name was William Williams. So. Well, it wasn't just my last name, but he had two na- two names, Williams, which I thought was uh, doubly good. He made the decision to come to America in 1863 because I could tell from the fact that he was born in England and he died in Wyoming. And the third thing was I'd never heard of him. So first thing I did was figure out how I get to where he came from, read the city of his birth, which was Shrewsbury, England. And then nowadays, the first thing we do is Google. So I went to Google and Shrewsbury, England, um, put, put Shrewsbury, England into Google. And the first thing that comes up is it's also Charles Darwin's birth, birthplace. And Charles Darwin was a real hero of mine, still is, in high school and college. Um, I took biology in college just because I love the idea of natural selection and looking for different Uh, definitions of that and different examples of it and the next thing I learned was that Charles Darwin was not only born there in Shrewsbury but within 10 months of William Williams so I just couldn't believe it that this person who was a hero of mine grew up and maybe knew my great 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 grandfather it made so much sense and and that for two or three years sort of short-circuited my story I discovered later that, well, I could not discover that they'd ever met, but I I found that Charles Darwin was born in this big house called the Mount up the hill five minutes from this sort of slum-like poor neighborhood called the Frankwell neighborhood where William Williams was born. So they lived really close to each other, but I could never really verify that they had met.
0: What was your what was your reaction then maybe just seeing it through through the eyes of your your ancestor William Williams what was your reaction to your you could call it your ancestral homelands or you know surrounding Shrewsbury England and comparing contrasting that to your 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 adopted home there in Castle Valley
1: to be honest it it didn't really get to me like I thought it might I didn't get any stirrings or you know feeling connected in that way it's Shrewsbury you know, it's a big city. I think even when uh, William Williams and Darwin were there, there were probably twenty-five thousand people. And it's right on the, in the area where the Industrial Revolution started. I think there's a the first iron bridge is not too far from there. So the Shrewd, the Severn River, which runs through the middle of the town of the city, is kind of that color, that army green color, because of all the pollutants. There are a lot of birds and insects and it's it's mildly wild in certain places i, I did as much as i could to find uh, wildness there and it was kind of difficult i did really enjoy the archaeology that was in the vicinity the standing stones and you know ancient cities but it didn't get to me um it didn't really move me the the
0: landscape what do you think? And you imagine this through the book. What What do you think William Williams' reaction would have been to the to to America? First of all, he he emigrated with with the Mormon company, right? He his yeah. family was baptized. I think he was not, right? Um, but he but he oh, came. I he came anyway. I
1: don't know. We're, I I made up. I imagined that they they did know each other, and that Darwin had quite an effect on him. And so i you know I, I was able to imagine a few um and write a few stories where you know he he liked being out um on the way. He spent a lot of time looking over the ocean watching things happen out in the out at sea, and then he liked to walk instead of riding in the in the wagon as much as he could coming across that that was my. Uh, my vision of of how he was. And, you know, some people have brought up, and I think that they, they aren't far off, the idea of what I was imagining was really kind of myself. Um, I, I, the only way I could really do it, even though I was not conscious of it, was to sort of put myself in his position and see the world that I would have wanted to see.
0: Mm. Now, William Williams, he he died about a week short of, of, of the goal, right? He died out there of uh, three crossings of the Sweetwater in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Um, of mat- uh, he,
1: I think he had, uh, they called it mountain fever, but mm-hmm. I think it was typhoid fever, which a lot of people got because, you know, things were a lot less than sanitary, especially toward the end. And I feel like he, based on the journals that I've been able to find, he had it for like 10 days. And then... Uh, one day, they were coming coming across the Sweetwater River at that place called Three Crossings, and he just was so sick and miserable, they had to stop and pull him out, lay him on the ground, and I think just to see if that would help him to get the fresh air and to stop moving for a while. And he died right there, and they dug a hole, a shallow grave. And I love this detail. They pulled, took apart the wagon and put the tailgate over him and covered it with rocks so that the animals wouldn't have as easy access to his body and then within a few hours they were on their way again.
0: Mhm. Yeah. Yeah, it's and, and uh, that's uh, fairly typical of of the of the experience. Um All right. let's take another break when we come back uh, we'll have a final segment with Brooke Williams his author most recently of Open Midnight Where Ancestors and Wilderness Meet. And uh, he'll be at the King's English Bookshop tonight at 7 for a book signing and event. And, Tom, yes. I'll be
1: tomorrow night. This might be helpful, too. I'll be tomorrow night at a new bookstore in Ogden called Booked on 25th
0: okay, on Books 25th on, Street. Okay, so I'm glad you mentioned that. 7
1: o'clock on Friday night.
0: Books, I'm writing it down. Books on 25th Street, and that's uh, tomorrow night at what time?
1: I think it's at 7 also.
0: Okay, great. So two events so you can interact with Brooke Williams, one in Salt Lake City and one in Ogden. More following this break. I'm Stephen Dubner on the next Freakonomics Radio, part one of our series on bad medicine. It really doesn't matter that the smartest people believe something works. The only thing that really counts is what is the evidence you have that it works. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Join us Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
1: I'm Eric Westervelt. I just spoke to our great General Mattis, just now, who reconfirmed that, and I quote, Ryan was a part of a highly successful raid. Navy SEAL Commando William Ryan Owens was killed in a recent ground raid in Yemen. His father is calling for an investigation. That story, next time on Here and Now.
0: Join us this morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We have about six minutes left in this conversation with Brooke Williams. He is author most recently of Open Midnight, Where Ancestors and Wilderness Meet. Uh, He has a couple of events coming up. Uh, Tonight, it's at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City. That uh, book signing starts at 7 o'clock. Then tomorrow night, books on 25th Street in Ogden, 7 p.m. So a couple of uh, options for you there. Uh, So Brooke Williams, let me just read this, this one sentence. This gets us into something very interesting from the book. Uh, page 113, discovering, uh, this is your ancestor, your great-great-great-grandfather. You say, discovering that William Williams was a part of my life turned any previous ideas I'd had about life after death upside down. And so you're not talking about there about the, the fact that he's an ancestor. You're talking about the fact that he's he, ha- he, he has an active part in your life.
1: That was my sense. And the only way I really can, can think about this is that once I discovered him, a lot of things started to shift. I found myself saying things I didn't know I knew. I found myself writing things that I didn't hadn't thought before. I found myself going in directions I, I probably wouldn't have picked otherwise. And then that book I mentioned, Dominion of the Dead, I opened it just at a bookstore, and because it had the title, it, the dead, dead was in the title, and in the first page it basically described my exact feelings about the dead and you know we grew up thinking that yeah after you know after the second coming all the dead will rise and that always you know with sort of the standards in terms of what life after death meant but now it's more of a kind of quantum idea i think the quantum physicists talk about many of them anyway talk about that we live in many different worlds and that the physical world, the one that we inhabit with these bodies, is just a small part of our total existence. And that once we die, we're out there in some other form. And uh, Robert Pogue Harrison, who wrote the book, Dominion of the Dead, talks about, um, based on a lot of not only personal experience, but um, historic references and philosophical um, ideas that the dead have a very close relationship with the unborn and that their job is to convince the living to live in such a way that they keep the story going for the unborn. And I just love that phrase, keep the story going. I mean, I've been working in ideas of sustainability for a long time and a lot of people have certain definitions of what sustainability means. And a lot of other people have a different idea, and it's hard to come to some uh, definition everybody agrees on. But for me, I just love the definition of sustainability is, what do we, how do we live to keep the story going? And that was, like I said earlier, the William Williams being alive in my life, he may be, he may not be. And I feel like something is out there. Something's going on that's significant. And... Uh, there's no way I can doubt it, or there's no way I can denounce it. So it's just something that can't be explained.
0: Uh, just uh, about a minute left. I want to return to this question we you posed in the book. We posed earlier in the que- in the program. Is it possible to become native to a new place?
1: I think in terms of specific. I think you're native to a place, to a specific place, and that's what I learned when I went to back to England, is I realized that I have Native ancestors, too. The difference between me and and the Native people that I know who live in southern Utah is that my ancestors made a decision to leave, to cut to cut off their roots to their Native selves. And now I think Native, if you look at a broader sense of it, I think what it means to be Native is to not be a conqueror, to not be an invader, to not take advantage of the Native people to you know, to, 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 to make individual gains. And I think that's what white Europeans have done in um, America. Uh, you know, Manifest Destiny was all about white people, mainly men, leaving Europe, going to America, overcoming the wilderness and suppressing the native people to extract the natural resources that were there. So I think being native to a place, is you know specifically, I you're native to one place basically, but in a general sense, it's just not being a conqueror or an invader.
0: Just uh, thirty seconds left here at the end. We you quoted uh, Clarissa Pincoleste's uh, at the beginning. This have at the beginning of the book. The doors to the world of the wild self are few but precious. What uh, what are those doors for you?
1: Well, the main door is wilderness, where, where she says. if you love the sky and water so much you can't bear it, that's a door. But I feel like for others, you know, it's uh, meditation, it's um, stillness. It's, like she said, it could be a deep scar or your old story. I think there are many doors, but the, the key is find one of them and get into that inner world. And the book talks a lot, in the book I talk a lot about why that's important, how our inner world is where we... Um, hold all our evolutionary history, including all the tools that we needed to save ourselves.
0: We will leave it there. We're out of time. We have enjoyed the discussion with Brooke Williams. His uh, latest book is Open Midnight, Where Ancestors and Wilderness Meet. A couple of options for you if you'd like to meet uh, Brooke Williams. uh, The King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City tonight. There's a book signing 7 o'clock, and then 7 o'clock tomorrow night, books on 25th Street in uh, Ogden. Brooke Williams, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Tom, thank you very much.
0: And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Melissa Robinson, the arts and culture reporter for Utah Public Radio. UPR is a community-based organization and we want to hear from you. What do you want to hear on the radio? Tell us about your experiences with arts and culture. Please visit our website at upr.org or call us at 1-800-826-1495. You can also share ideas with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Just be sure to include the hashtag I am UPR.